So this morning we'll be in John 19, 23 to 24. And uh, I, I trust that maybe as you have a chance to look at these passages ahead of time, you begin to think along the lines of the titles that I'm trying to send out. And uh, you know, last week we saw the glory of kingship in the suffering of Jesus. And this week, John wants us to see again the glory of kingship, this time in the related theme, but in the humiliation of Jesus. And he wants us to see this. Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. So we see that the stakes are high. If we don't see the glory of kingship and the humiliation of Jesus, right? how can we truly see in him our Savior? So we come then to our, our passage this morning, which is very brief. We're going to spend most of our time in the Psalms. But John 19, 23-24a says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, and we can say, we know now, when they had lifted Jesus up, they took his garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier, and also his tunic. Now that tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And uh, it's in your handout there. But to just note that that's one of those intimate marks of an eyewitness that, that John, who, who we believe writes this gospel, sees and knows that that, what that tunic was. It was a tunic woven in one piece from the top. Um, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. I don't know if this becomes a little too familiar to us, as so often many portions of the scriptures do, but to think about someone dividing up my clothes, right? even, even debating among themselves who will get which part of, of my clothes, this is, this is something, I don't know, to think about. We'll come to it again in, in a little bit, but... The personal effects of those who were crucified, and we remember that multitudes of people were crucified. There was nothing special about the cross prior to, to Christ. Um, they were always divided up among the soldiers assigned to the execution. So that was just the way it worked. Who, who, get, who, gets, who gets their stuff? The soldiers got it. In this case, we know there were four soldiers. Because after, uh, they divided up four ways. So there's four soldiers in this execution squad, as it were. And, and after dividing everything up, there's still the tunic that Jesus wore that was left over. Since it's of some value and it's seamless and woven in one piece, not patched together from different pieces, they decide to cast lots for it. And again, that's probably almost certainly not unusual. Soldiers probably cast lots for other people's clothing as well. Now, as soon as we say that, we might begin to have a question, okay, if you know where this is going. But I just want to point that out here at the beginning. Now, why does John recount this? Why does John tell us this? What's the big deal? He answers in the next half of verse 24, this was in order, or they did this in order that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then he quotes from the scriptures in the Old Testament, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then he repeats himself. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, right? Because, because this was to fulfill what it says in the Old Testament. So my question for you is, what's John doing? Has he just found a really 
really neat connection. Is he saying basically like this? Is he saying, look, the Old Testament predicted it, and now it happened. Is this just an apologetic to prove the accuracy of the Old Testament? Look, the Old Testament is true because the Old Testament said it would happen, and hundreds of years later, it did. Or is this just an apologetic to prove that because this happened to Jesus, he must be the Messiah? Look, the Old Testament said it happened to Jesus. He must be the Messiah. There you go. That's how we tend to look at things, isn't it, when we read this? We think, oh, that's cool. That's really neat. Look, it happened. And that's how we look at things. But John's agenda is deeper than that. It's richer. The Greek word... And this is a word we're going to hear a lot this morning. The Greek word for fulfilled could also be translated, and is in other places, filled up in your handout. Or we could say made full. So if we put this in context, John says this was in order that the scripture would be filled up. This was in order that the scripture would be Made full. If you think about that, it might give you a better picture of the kind of beauty John sees in this fulfillment. In fact, the Bible is never, ever just about it predicted it, it happened. We've got to get over that. So I'm just asking you to get over that, right? Yes, In many cases, it did predict something, and it did happen, but that's never the main point, and that's where we kind of camp out. There's always a theology underneath the prediction. We're going to see that this morning. John quotes from Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now the Psalms, we know, are the Psalms of David, in your handout, the king. Most of the Psalms were written by David himself, or they were written under his supervision. The Psalms that were not written by David or under his supervision were included in the Psalter. We call the book of Psalms the Psalter. They were included in that Psalter only as these were appropriate to a royal Psalter. So when you think of the Psalms, you need to think of something royal, something kingly. The Psalms of the king. Let let me just look at this and set the backdrop. Psalms 1 to 2, the first two Psalms in the Psalter, are really a single unit. And they're tied together in all sorts of ways. And they function as the introduction to the book, the introduction to the Psalter. And the second part of that introduction, Psalm chapter 2, is all about the universal, the everlasting rule of Yahweh's anointed. The anointed is the king, the one who is anointed for that office as king. It's all about the rule of the king whom the Lord has installed upon Zion, his holy mountain. So this is what the king writes, David after he's been anointed. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, that's the king, the anointed, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. David understands that he is Yahweh's royal son. David is the son of God. 
that was an expression used in the Old Testament, even in pagan nations, but certainly in Israel, for the king. The king was the son of God because of his nature mediating God's rule. He was the son whom Yahweh had begotten because of Yahweh's decree. Yahweh decreed that David would be the king, and so he begot his son, his royal son. But David also understood that his his own royal sonship, which he didn't have by any right of his own or by anything of his own nature, that it would be fulfilled. David's own royal sonship was not a prediction, but it was something that would be filled up. And it would be filled up in his seed. His rule would be fulfilled, filled up in the universal, the everlasting rule of his greater son. So, we've got the introduction to Psalms, right? And we know what the introduction is about. It's about the rule of God through his anointed king. Now, if Psalms begins with the promise of the rule of the God of Israel over all the earth, it ends equally wonderfully with a foretaste of the fulfillment of that promise. So the book of Psalms ends with this six-chapter finale. And it's six chapters, again, that are all woven together. You can't separate them. And they are the conclusion to the book of Psalms, praising Yahweh for his universal, for his everlasting kingship, that he is the king. So we read in Psalm 145, the, the first chapter of the conclusion. I will exalt you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you, and your holy ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, and talk of your might, to make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds, and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures from generation to every generation. Chapter 146. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, from generation to generation. Chapter 149. Sing to Yahweh a new song. His praise in the assembly of the holy ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their And I would love to have you all say it with me, but we won't do that now. But I just want you to love this word. Rejoice and be glad in their king. King. So we see from the introduction and from the conclusion that the Psalter, the fundamental theme of the Psalms, is the universal and the everlasting kingship of Yahweh. But remember, it's not just about Yahweh ruling from the heavens. How does Yahweh rule over his people and over his world? Through his anointed king that he installs on Zion, his holy mountain. You can't read the book of Psalms, the Psalms of the king, without getting that. And so it's in this sense that the entire book of Psalms, we've got the intro, the conclusion, everything in the middle goes with the intro and conclusion. That the, therefore, the entire book of Psalms is prophetic. When we think of prophetic, don't just think of predictions. We're thinking of something that needs to be filled up, of something that needs to be made full. The entire book of Psalms is messianic, pointing to the Messiah. So the royal sonship of David, David was the son of God. Not in the same, all the same ways that Jesus is, we know. But that his sonship is going to be filled up in the royal sonship of his greater son. David ruled for a time, not forever. And he ruled only over Israel and some surrounding nations. But that rule is going to be filled up in the universal and the everlasting rule of his greater son. Okay, we have the intro and the conclusion. It's all triumphant, it's all good, it's all glorious, it's all wonderful. But in the introduction, 
there is the certainty of opposition, even of suffering, before the final triumph. So let's go back at Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage? Well, that tells us that they are raging. Why do the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, the king. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And how does the king respond to all this opposition? How does the, how does the anointed respond to this? I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, says David, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, David, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. David understood that this promise was to him. He also understood it would be filled up in his seed. So in the very next chapter, when we come past the intro, you know, we got the intro conclusion. The very next chapter, chapter 3, what do we see? The nations are raging. Okay? Psalm 2, it's like, oh, it's all good. It's like you could almost try to convince yourself it's all just going to happen magically, right? No problems, no sufferings. It's all just, they start to rage and God shuts them down. But no, chapter 3, we see, no, the nations are raging. The peoples are meditating on a vain thing. And we see God's anointed king threatened, mocked. We see him praying to Yahweh as well in the light of Yahweh's decree. So when the decree, when the king is threatened, when the nations rage, when the king is mocked, and he, and he sees this happening, what does he do? He says, Yahweh, you made a decree. You said, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And so a king goes to Yahweh and he prays in light of that decree. We see that in chapter 3. Oh, Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. This is the king here praying. After the triumph of chapter 2, many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But what about your promise, your decree? Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. And those words we can say, I'm going to say right now, those are filled up in Jesus, who cried out to God for salvation and was saved. He didn't need the salvation we have, salvation from sin, but he cried out to God as a true human being for salvation from death. And Hebrews tells us that God heard his cry. Save me, O my God, says King David, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Okay, so sandwiched in between the promise and the foretaste of that fulfillment between the triumph of the first two chapters and the triumph of the last six chapters, there are numerous laments in the book of Psalms. And these laments must always be read in the light of the promise and the fulfillment, the triumphant introduction and the concluding finale. In fact, the laments themselves often end with a reminder of the certainty of triumph. So, Psalm 22, the psalm that John quotes is one of these laments, okay? So you see, we're coming back to John, but brothers and sisters, because we live in the day and the age that we live in, so far removed, actually, I just want you to see something. We're going to work rather, rather diligently to come to see what John is thinking. But if we, if we had lived back in that day, and we were a little more familiar with our Old Testaments, it would lie right on the surface, this is, not, this is not like, well, you have to work hard to see that. No, it's just like, you read it, 
This is to fulfill the scripture, and we all see it. It's all right there on the surface of the text. And that's what I want us to get to this morning, where when we see this fulfillment, we see it too, right there on the surface. So Psalm chapter 22 is a psalm of David. And who is David? He's the royal son of God. And this psalm begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know those are words that David prayed. And he prayed them as the result of his own personal experience of suffering and shame. In other words, what I want us to see is there's no prediction here. David is not predicting anything. He's praying as a result of his own experience. And yet, 1,000 years later, these words are filled up in the experience of his greater son, Jesus, when he cries out from the cross, as we know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus isn't just quoting a memory verse. You don't quote memory verses on a cross. Not, not in that sense. Jesus didn't pray this either because he had to. Like he wasn't hanging on the cross thinking, now G- David predicted through the Holy Spirit that I would say this, so I've got to say it. No, in fact, if Jesus had never prayed those words, nothing would have been the problem. Because David never predicted anything. David just prayed those words himself. There was no prediction. Jesus prayed this. Why? Because he himself, himself, was already the fulfillment of the Psalms. He is the one in whom the Psalms are filled up. Jesus prayed this because he is David's greater son. He is the royal son of God, whom God will install as king upon the heavenly Zion. Not the earthly one, the heavenly one. His holy mountain. So what we see, if you want to know, this is, this is deep, this is, this is sacred. The words of the psalmist came as naturally to Jesus in prayer as any words of his own because the words of the psalmist were his own. They belonged, in your handout, ultimately to him. What does that tell us? And we're going to come back to this several times as we move along. It tells us that even in the language of Jesus' real lament, and by the way, again, was this a real lament for Jesus? When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as David cried the same words out a thousand years earlier. You can't sugarcoat that. You can't, you can't tame that down or, or, or sanitize it. That's real lament. And yet we see in those words the promise of his victory. See, when Jesus draws his lament from Psalm 22... That is, in itself, the assurance of his triumph and of the triumph of his kingdom. We'll see that even more. Try Try to grasp that. We're going to see it more clearly as we go along. David, the royal son of God, he cries out in Psalm 22. Let's go back and continue on in the psalm, skipping ahead a few verses. All who see me mock me. They smack their lip, they wag their head, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. Because he delights in him. Right? In Matthew 27, we hear the same words from the lips of those who are mocking Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Matthew 27, and those passing by were blaspheming him, wagging their heads, 
The chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now here's a question for you. Matthew just quotes direct from Psalm 22. Like he's, if, you, if we're to take this literally, what he's saying is that when the Pharisees were mocking Jesus as he hung on the cross, they said, let's quote Psalm 22 and mock Jesus. Well, you can be sure they were not at least consciously quoting Psalm 22 because if they consciously quote Psalm 22, what does that make them? It makes them the bad guys. It, it clearly makes them the bad guys. So, Matthew sees in their words, and I don't believe they actually quoted Psalm 22, but the gist of their words was essentially what Matthew sees in Psalm 22. So, Matthew sees in their words, even if it wasn't an exact quotation, the what in your handout? What is it? It's the filling up of Psalm 22. Therefore, Matthew sees even in the mockery of Jesus' accusers, the guarantee of his final triumph. Psalm 22 can never be read apart from the context in your handout. The context of the triumphant introduction and the glorious finale of the whole book of Psalms. And, and this is important because Again, I had, I had a couple commentaries that they, they kind of said, well, it's interesting, this, this, this fulfillment, this quote, is typical of the Jewish way to see these things. And it's as though they think that John was just quoting a verse that he pulled out of the context. But when we know the context, we see the glory of kingship in the very mockery of Jesus. Because when you fill up this part, you know it means you're filling up the whole. Do you see? When Jesus, in his experience, is filling up the afflictions of his anointed, of God's anointed, he's also therefore filling up the whole. And we've seen the whole this morning. In the introduction and the conclusion to the book of Psalms. David, the royal son of God, let's continue in Psalm 22, he cries out in verses 14 to 16. And here's a chance for you to do some of the work that Matthew and John do. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Is David predicting something? No, there's no prediction. David's praying because of his own experience. He's not thinking of he's not thinking of the Messiah at this point. And David likens his experience. He says, he says I'm like, a, I'm like a, a nearly dead corpse that's laying on the ground and in that day there were, you'd have packs of scavenging dogs, like wild dogs, jackals, kind of an idea. And so David pictures himself as this corpse, nearly dead, almost dead, and the scavenging dogs are surrounding him knowing he's at death's door. And they're, they're picking at his hands. And they're picking at his feet. The New Testament never quotes this verse. Never, never, ever quotes this verse. You'd think it would, right? Pierced his hands and his feet. New Testament never quotes it as being filled up in the crucifixion of Jesus. But does it need to? Just as the scavenging dogs pierced the psalmist's hands and feet with their teeth, 
Now the enemies of Jesus pierce his hands and feet with nails. And so we're not being, we're not being fanciful. We're simply seeing the experience of David, Yahweh's anointed, being filled up in the experience of his greater son, Jesus. Then the very next words of David are these. Here's the very next words. I count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. David is being metaphorical here. He is, he is symbolically describing his own personal experience of suffering and humiliation. So as one commentator puts it, this was the last and greatest indignity. The last possession a person would retain was the garment that was his until he died. Here they were dividing up his property, his clothes, because they considered that he was as good as dead. Again, just to remind us that throughout history, there have been many times when people have divided up the possessions, the property, the clothing of those that they have just um, defeated or that have, they have driven to death. Right? So this is nothing new. David, David uses this analogy because it's, it's an obvious analogy. David is being humiliated. His enemies believe they've, they've got him. It's like they believe that so clearly they're already in the process of dividing up his possessions. There's nothing unusual about this. This is the way of the world. This is the way it goes. So David writes this psalm describing this is what's happening to me. This is not a prediction. 1,000 years later, we see his greater son, Jesus, hanging on a cross. Encompassed by a band of evildoers surrounded by dogs who were not just metaphorically but even literally dividing up his clothes casting lots for his tunic remember every other man who was ever crucified not, 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 not every other one sometimes they were tied up by ropes but many other men had their hands and feet pierced as they were crucified. It's not unique to Jesus. Roman soldiers divided up the clothes of thousands of other men, of other crucified victims. So that Jesus' clothes were divided up was not unique. Very likely, there were numerous other crucifixion scenes where you could have seen the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for who would get this or that item. The simple fact that these things happened to Jesus doesn't prove anything. And that's not John's point. He's not trying to prove anything by that simple fact. This is not about a prediction that came to pass because there was no prediction. Here, here is what is happening. John's apologetic, his argument, his proof, is that even the Messiah, even the royal son of God, must suffer humiliation. Therefore, because the humiliation of Jesus is the filling up of the humiliation of Yahweh's anointed king, we can see, even in his real humiliation, the assurance and the promise of his triumph. You see, when Jesus suffered humiliation, hanging essentially essentially, if not truly naked on the cross, while his clothes are being auctioned off or divided up among the soldiers, 
and the people mock. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening in all of that? What is happening? He is filling up. He is filling up all the sufferings of God's anointed. So Psalm 22 cannot be read outside the context of the introduction to Psalms, the conclusion to Psalms. Neither can you read this chapter apart from its own triumphant conclusion. So we read later on in this same chapter, But you, O Yahweh, be not far off, O my strength. Hasten to my help. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. I will surely recount your name, says David, God's, the son of God, the anointed king. I will surely recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Do you recognize those words? Right, maybe you do. The author of Hebrews says that these words, originally spoken by King David, because of his own personal experience, he wasn't predicting a Messiah when he spoke these words. They were just from his own heart. But the writer of Hebrews says that they are filled up. They're filled up in the personal experience and testimony of Jesus. So we read in Hebrews chapter 2, it was fitting for him, for God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. That's us. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all of one of God. For which reason he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and he quotes David's own words, his own prayer in Psalm 22. I will recount your name to my brothers. In the case of Jesus, when you have saved me from death through resurrection, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. We see then Jesus leading us in praising God. And what exactly did David say when he recounted Yahweh's name to his brothers? You see how, where we go with this? Now we have to look and say, well, what did David say when he recounted God's name to his brothers? He said this. He has not despised and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him for help, he heard. These are the words that Jesus speaks now to us here. As the one whom God has raised up from the dead, as the one through whom God is now bringing many sons to glory, right? even in the midst of our sufferings. These are the words Jesus speaks to us. And remember, who is it that speaks these words to us? God has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. The one who speaks those words to us is the one who has filled up and completed in his own experience how many of the afflictions of Yahweh's anointed? How many? All. All. So how does Psalm 22 end? It does not end with lament. John, in 19, chapter 19, quotes the lament part, but he expects you to remember that Psalm 22 does not end with lament. It ends the same way the whole Psalter ends with the joyful celebration of universal, everlasting, in your handout, kingship of Yahweh, mediated in and through his Son, 
whom he has anointed and installed on Zion, his holy mountain. So let's read the conclusion to Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. If I could remind us of what Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when I have been lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When I have been lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And here we see that it is through his humiliation and sufferings that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you for the kingdom. This is Psalm 22, brothers and sisters. The kingdom is Yahweh's. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. In other words, the poor who are without resources, they too will worship. Their seed will serve him. It will be recounted about the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. This is how the psalm ends that begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. This is how the psalm ends that describes the humiliation of God's anointed. The one who is mocked, whose hands and feet are pierced, whose garments are divided among his enemies as he hangs naked on the cross. Let's then read again from John 19. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, when they had lifted Jesus up, took his garments and made four parts, a part to each soldier and also his tunic. Now that tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And what do we see in this, brothers and sisters? What did John see in this? This was in order that the scripture would be filled up, made full. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. We know now this is not about a prediction. It's not about our apologetic just to prove to someone that the Old Testament must be inspired, it must be true, it must be accurate. That's not what it's about. Though that that may be secondary. John's agenda is deeper. It's richer. It's meant to provoke faith in us. You, You see, proving to someone that the Bible is pretty neat and that it got everything right doesn't, doesn't elicit faith. That's not what elicits faith. What John wants us to see in this is the very thing that elicits faith, that he is the Son of God, the Christ, that we might have life in his name. What John sees in this fulfillment, in this filling up of Scripture, is proof. Proof not of the things that we often think of, It is proof for him that even God's own anointed king experiences humiliation before triumph, seeming defeat before victory. And so the story of the triumph of God's king is written all the way through his sufferings. And that's not all John sees. This is perhaps even more, more important. Since in the humiliation of Jesus, see, he's not just filling up the scriptures. When we say he's filling up scripture, what we mean is this. He is filling up all the afflictions of Yahweh's anointed. And since that is what Jesus is doing as he hangs on the cross we can see that even his humiliation is in some mysterious and wonderful way 
part of his triumph. It's not just the prelude to his triumph. It doesn't just lead to his triumph. It's part of his triumph. Because when he's humiliated, he's filling up the sufferings of God's anointed. Even his apparent defeat is part of his victory. Even his cross is his being lifted up. Now in the experience of David, how did God answer him? How did God answer David? He answered him not by keeping, uh, he did answer him by keeping him from death, right? By keeping him from the grave. So David lived to see another day. He didn't die in those, in those uh, specific circumstances. But in the experience of Jesus, how does God answer Jesus? He does not keep him from death. He raises him up after death. And so as the one who fills up Psalm 22, John sees even in the humiliation and seeming defeat of Jesus, we're going to take it one last step. He sees in that humiliation the means by which the concluding words of Psalm 22 are also filled up. And what are those concluding words? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is Yahweh's. And he rules over the nations. Do you believe? Have you believed that he is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you have life in his name? This, this, this elicits faith. Why does John single out this particular fulfillment? We went through Psalm 22, and there were all sorts of them, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John doesn't even tell us Jesus cried that out from the cross. Um, The mockery. Uh, if you're the son of God, it'd come down, or let, let God deliver him, if God delights in him. John never tells us about the people mocking Jesus with those words. Um, what, and in fact, John is the only one who quotes this verse about, about the clothes being divided. Why is John the only one who singles this out for special mention? Maybe because John is also the only gospel writer, the only one, who tells us how Jesus laid aside his own garments only the night before. So in John, in the whole Gospel of John, you really see this word for garments only these two times. John chapter 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the uttermost. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. Hematian. And taking a towel, he tied it around himself. Then he poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. Having that picture in our mind from just hours previously, probably less than 12 hours earlier, we see that even now as the soldiers divide Jesus' garments among themselves what do we see we see in this humiliation the continued self emptying of Jesus so that we might be born into his kingdom
so that we might enjoy all the blessings of his kingship. And what are all the blessings of his kingship? They're too numerous to recount. But certainly of cleansing, washing, of pardon, of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to live under his kingship? Well, it means, in this case, it means that this way of thinking, which was in Christ Jesus, is to be in us as well. It means that if we would reign with Christ, then we must be the slaves of one another. It means that when we have become as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things, then we are to glory in our humiliation. Because this is the sign we are partakers of his triumph. See, Jesus filled up all the sufferings of David's anointed, of of God's anointed. And so now, our sufferings, being a sharing in his sufferings, partake in the nature of that filling up until we share in his glory and reign with him. We glory then in our humiliation because this is the sign that we've come to share in his kingdom and that we've even now been seated with him in the heavenly places. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for eliciting in my heart today faith. Now I can confess, perhaps we can all confess, that at times we doubt, at times our faith is weak. And yet we thank you for this gospel that John has written under the inspiration of the Spirit, pointing us to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ that we might believe, that we might be full of faith. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the King. Believing that he is the King, not simply because of what's happened after the resurrection, but because of what we see him doing in his sufferings, that we see even in his humiliation, his triumph. Lord, may we then believe that we might have life in his name and live that life today and this week. Lord, if, if, if Jesus could suffer humiliations such as he did, may there be no humiliation too low for us too to endure to suffer. Lord, thank you that we can come now in faith to your table, to the table of our King. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.